I'm turning today to the first letter of Peter, chapter 3 and verse 1. First Peter, chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation, the behavior of the wives. And we're looking this morning at this very, very practical passage, the features of Christian marriage. There is so much that could be said from this passage, and we will look only at the principal points and themes. And here in chapter 3 and verse 1 of Peter's first epistle is the duty of submission to the husband on the part of the wife. Be in subjection, says the Apostle Peter, to your own husbands. Place yourself under, is the sense. Uh, some translate it, be obedient. But that has a slightly different sense, as we shall see. Be in subjection to your own husbands. Uh, it echoes what the Apostle Paul has in Ephesians 5, where an almost identical exhortation is accompanied with the words as unto the Lord, as you are unto the Lord and in obedience to him. So ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. And we learn here and elsewhere, many times over in the New Testament, that there is an order in marriage. And the order is, that ultimately the husband is the head of the household, of the wife, and the wife is to uh, help and strengthen and be a blessing to her husband and her family. But we want to look at some of the fine print, as it were, the details of this. Ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. It is a command of scripture. It isn't an idea of a preacher. It is a command, it is a duty, and we want to see the terms and the conditions. But here, immediately, the Apostle Peter goes on to speak about the difficulty of those uh, women who are married to unbelieving husbands. Now, that is a very difficult situation in any age, but think of it in that age particularly when uh, it was almost a treasonable matter to vary in religion from your husband. And you may well incur his uh, considerable anger and wrath. You were doing something which he considered to be insulting and belittling. And uh, it was an outrage. And how godly a woman had to be if she was to win her husband and how careful and what pain at time she might have to bear. Of course, this is not a license uh, for husbands to behave as they wish. And it's quite certain that uh, if uh, husbands are impossible and violent or utterly abusive and constitute threats to their wives and to their families, well then, that breaks a marriage and wounds and injures a marriage. That's another subject. 
And uh, we're not among those who would give this absurd teaching, which you do sometimes hear today, that a Christian wife must put up with literally anything. That's not the case. But as far as she possibly can, if, uh, unless there is violence or intolerable abuse, then uh, uh, her aim and her great prayer and her desire is to seek the soul of her husband. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they repudiate the gospel and the word entirely, they also may without the word, don't take that absolutely literally, you cannot of course be one for Christ and saved without the word, without knowledge of God and of his holiness and our sinfulness and the redemptive plan and Christ coming from heaven to earth to die an atoning death for sinners and trusting in that alone and repenting of sin and yielding your life to God and experiencing all the blessings of conversion. So you can't, strictly speaking, be saved without the word. The Apostle Peter doesn't mean to imply that, but he's saying if somebody won't listen to the word, well, the uh, spearhead, as it were, of witness is behavior, is the witness of the life. They may be won, won over, you might say, by the conversation. Uh, the word conversation used to mean mainly behavior and secondarily talk, conversation. Now it's come to mean only the talk part. And so our King James Version seems to ring strange to us. Maybe one by the conversation, literally the toing and froing, the aspects of behavior and conduct of the wife. She's a lady of such grace and sweetness and bearing, and she has such patience and kindness and forbearance that he's, uh, he's convicted as the spirit works and is moved and his own wretchedness and miserableness becomes clear to him and his hostility. And he can be one. It can happen. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says exactly the same. Who knows but that your unbelieving spouse may be one. He uses the word weather. He or she should be saved. One for Christ. It ha the Lord is in it. And we know so very many cases where that has happened. You should never, as a Christian, marry somebody who is not a Christian. But if you are married when you become a Christian, there is great hope that your husband, wife, may be saved through your bearing and your words and your conduct. It's a promise lurking in the verse. Verse 2, while they behold your chaste, that is to say pure behavior, coupled with fear. Why coupled with fear? Fear of your 
husband who is an unbeliever or fear of your wife who is an unbeliever? No, the fear word means fear of discrediting God or the gospel, fear of falling into uh, uh, self-pity and misery and perhaps even bitterness, coupled with fear, reverence and respect for God and fear of not being a witness, pure behavior coupled with fear. I could suggest more things from this verse at length, but we'll cover the ground a little later. Look at verse 3. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning. It's a wonderful argument here, and you'll see it. Let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and the wearing of gold or putting on of apparel. Now, it should be apparent as we read on to the next verse, that this verse is not an absolute prohibition of any form of decoration in dress. This is a matter of emphasis. Don't emphasize the outward, emphasize the inward. Don't rely on the outward, rely on the inward. Don't pay your greatest attention to the outward, but to the inward. This is going to be the argument. It's not an absolute prohibition to pounce on. You must never, under any circumstances, wear gold. Not even on a ring. Or something of that kind. No. Whose adorning, let it not be that of the outward, verse 4, but let it be the hidden man. It's a matter of emphasis. So we are very light on outward decoration, We do uh, uh, feel that people, Christian people, should pay attention to appearance and be smart and to honor God and be presentable. And uh, we do approve of ladies having a degree of decoration which becomes them, but not excessive, not relying on it. Of course not, it's just outward. Peter will say. So, if somebody has plaited here, we don't leap on 1 Peter 3, verse 3, and say there's a prohibition here. There isn't. But if you spent all day on it, and it was the most elaborate and wonderful and staggering thing in the world, and you depended upon that for beauty and appearance, you've got it all wrong. More attention needs to go on the inner person. Verse 4, but let it be the hidden man or person of the heart in that which is not corruptible. Why, the the jewellery, that can all be lost or stolen. That can pass, become no longer fashionable or attractive to you. Let it not be that which is corruptible in any way, but the ornament of a meek, and for meek read, servant spirit. The ornament of a servant spirit and a quiet spirit, not rancorous, clamorous, 
bitter, insistent. These words can be repaid good um, exploration. The hidden man of the heart is a mystery in the verse. Peter is saying, let your adornment be something which is hidden. And the remarkable thing is that the hidden inner adornment is infinitely more noticeable and attractive than the outward expensive adornment. Certainly more effective. Doesn't that sound contradictory? But it's true. You concentrate on the inner adornment of the right spirit, a servant spirit, men and women. These words are not just directed at wives because if we had time to explore other scriptures, we would see that in other passages they are applied to men also. And in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, very similar terms are applied to office bearers also and elsewhere to preachers also. So don't think this is unreasonable. Is only the woman to be meek and to have a servant spirit? No, this crops up in a great many places. And in fact, it kind of crops up in verse 8 here. Finally, be ye all of one mind. The meek word isn't used, but look at it. Be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Lovers, brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. The meek word is almost there too. So it doesn't just single out the wives, but it's uttered here in the context of wives. The ornament is in italics, but it's called for of a meek and quiet spirit. What if you have a very um, uh, active personality and uh, an effervescent personality, let's say, and you, you speak out, you take initiatives, there's fire in you. you, you there's a life in you. That's your personality. Some people are naturally quiet. Almost naturally they have a kindly servant spirit. But what if you have a much more exciting personality? Must you also smother it and contain it and be meek and quiet? Why? You're a woman, but you're a person of initiative. You see what needs to be done, and you attend to it straight away. You're alive to things. You perceive the implication of things. You've got this lively, active personality. Are you to be calm, tranquil, silent, hold back, and so on, all the time, against your natural instincts? Well, if you have that kind of personality, it is an enormous advantage. It's an enormous help. God distributes aspects of personality and gifts differently. Some people are more contemplative, more thoughtful, more reflective. It takes them a bit longer, maybe, to get the point, but they get it more deeply, you know. And some people are very quick 
and active. It's a great boon to have people who have natural energy and initiative and notice and see what needs doing. Tremendous thing. But it's very sad if the muscles of self-control are not accompanying that personality and they're left slack. And so the first thing that comes into your head, even if it's a sharp word, even if it's an inappropriate word, which could be belittling or an action which seems to brush somebody off and step in their way, it's a great shame if you can't control that. It's a tremendous asset to be an active person and an initiative taker. It's a gift you've been given. Other gifts you don't have. But it still has to be subject to self-mastery, self-control. Think of how the Apostle Paul instructs the officers of the church and he tells them that they've got to be able to control themselves. He uses the sober word, self-mastery, self-control. And he uses it several times over in one chapter. So if you have that personality, you still have to have a servant spirit. And you have to know how to let it rip in the right way. And not uh, in a a way which is clamorous, noisy, insistent, opinionated, driving over other people, and so on. And particularly in marriage. Whose adorning let it not be that of the outward adorning of plaiting the hair, but verse 4, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God. Remember the words of Hagar in the book of Genesis, after the angel spoke to her, and she uttered those tremendous words, Thou, God, seest me. But it came home to her. God was watching her. She was under the eye of God. And it's often said that that's one of the very best mottos for the Christian life. Thou, God, seest me. That helps us to contain ourselves in the sight of God. Thou, God, seest me. My every reaction, my every word, my every act as a believer is in the sight of God who loves me, Christ who gave himself for me, which is in the sight of God of great price, of immense value, even to God, values your servant spirit and your rooting of natural energy and initiative in a proper way and in an appropriate way. So you have the gifts. You have the calling as a wife. You have great things to do. Martin Luther once said that a woman possesses more capacity to teach children 
to command their attention, to engage them and guide them and influence them, she has more capacity in her little finger than a man has in his whole body. Well, that's not in the Bible, although it may be in some form. Those are the words of the great reformer, and I think he's largely right. You have great gifts, a great office, a great work to do, a great responsibility, but you have to lead the way with a servant spirit. Verse 5, For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their, unto their own husbands, even as Sarah. Why Sarah? Why does the Apostle Peter, under inspiration, pick Sarah, of all women in the whole Bible, as an example of marriage? Well, you can answer that if you think about it. Who was Sarah? The wife of the father of the faithful. So she's the mother of the faithful. So after all, it's wholly natural that under inspiration, Peter should select her as the great example. Let's go right back to the beginning. This has always been so, he says. The mother of the faithful, Sarah. This is how she was. She saw her role and its importance and its privilege and its conditions. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also. We have in the book of Genesis an instance where Sarah didn't behave in an exactly a holy way, a trusting way, a faithful way. And she had to mend her ways in that respect. So why is she called one of the holy women? Ah, this is the point. In olden times, says Peter, the set-aside-for-God women, Sarah, the mother of the faithful, was, like Abraham, set aside for God. Abraham was a tent-dweller. He lived in tents all his life, looking for that city, the letter to the Hebrews tells us, that permanent and abiding city, that heavenly city, he wasn't looking for a city here or he wouldn't have spent his life in a tent. And however God enriched him, he stayed in a tent because it was a symbol of the life of the faithful. We're not of this world. We don't settle down in this world. We don't belong to this world. We don't make roots in this world. We have a pilgrim spirit all our lives. And Sarah accepted that. A holy woman means a set-aside woman. Set aside for God. Sacred unto the Lord. She saw the role of Abraham and herself. And she dignified it. And she kept it. That's us. As husbands and wives. Set aside for God. Not of this world. Role relationships between husband and wife. For after this manner 
in the old time, verse 5, the holy, sacred, set-aside women also who trusted in God adorned themselves in their innermost selves, in their spirit, in their manner, being under, in subjection unto their own husbands. Verse 6, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters are ye, the daughters of the mother of the faithful. As long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement, whatever does that mean? Well, it means simply this, as long as you're not intimidated. By who? Well, for starters, by the world around you. You see these days, feminism and bossy people and people who must have their way, people who must be king, people who must be chief, people who are watching their rights the whole time. Don't be intimidated. As long as you do well, you're not afraid and overawed by people who don't conform to the rules of God and to the ways of God and to the sanctifying influences of the Lord. That's really what the passage means. Whose daughters are ye, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. You're unintimidated by the ways, intimidated by the ways of the world. But now to the husband. I mustn't leave myself out of time for the husband. Verse 7, likewise ye husbands. What's likewise therefore? Well, he must cultivate an inner ornament, ornamentation as well, a right spirit. Dwell with them according to knowledge. What fascinating words. I like to speak about this sometimes at wedding services. Dwell with your wife according to knowledge. What knowledge? It's gnosis in the Greek, it's knowledge, straight knowledge. Whatever is Peter returning, referring to. Some of the modern translations ruin the passage and they've decided that according to knowledge means dwell with your wives with consideration. That's not what it means. They're desperately looking for some synonym which will do and which will be more acceptable in modern language, and they get it wrong. No way does it just mean with consideration, though of course you should live with consideration. It's referring to something much bigger. The knowledge word always refers to a kind of totality of knowledge or a body of knowledge. Dwell with your wives according to knowledge. It's rather like the taxi driver. He has to learn what they call the knowledge. And people know that that means he has to know every street and every significant place in London 
a vast amount of information. He has to know his city, the knowledge. And that's the direction the word is going in here. Dwell with your wife according to knowledge. First of all, top of the list of your knowledge to learn as a husband is the biblical rules for marriage. You should be deeply acquainted with 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and chapter 13 in particular. And you should work through it verse by verse. The definition of love and its standards and what it does. Because God commands you, Ephesians 5, to love your wives. So you want the First Corinthians 13 definition of love. Every single verse. What does it mean? And you'll be convicted. And you'll be stimulated. According to knowledge. Do you know God's rules? For loving kindness. And goodness. Towards your wife. Then you have to have a knowledge of your wife. And her gifts. And her capacities. Are you stifling them? Are you not allowing them to be exercised and expressed? You have to have a knowledge of her intuition. Her understanding and perception of things that you're very slow to understand. She picks up numerous things in her particular feminine wisdom that you're a complete blockhead over. And you've got to be aware of that. And you've got to listen carefully to her on all sorts of issues. Because she gets it where you don't. And she sees things that you don't. And feels things that you don't. You must dwell with her according to knowledge. Or you don't appreciate what God has equipped you with and helped you with and given you to watch out for. You've got to have a knowledge of her weaknesses because you're to support her in them and help her in those things. You have to have a knowledge of all kinds of things. I'm not going to preach a wedding service now. Dwell with her according to knowledge. A husband is useless if he isn't thoughtful and reflective and appreciative and if he doesn't praise and thank God for all the dimensions that a wife brings into the marriage he's a fool and he's a bad husband dwell with them according to knowledge it's a tremendous word I wish we had time to focus on this alone Giving honour, verse 7, unto the wife, esteem and value and worth. Every time you think a bad thought, kick it out and think a good thought and appreciate her and praise and thank God for her. Giving honour unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and look at these words because our time is getting so low and as being heirs together there is an equality in marriage 
there is headship, but there is equality. Heirs together, you're going to have the same inheritance. One day in heaven, there'll be no difference. One day it won't be head of the house, supportive role. You'll be equal stars in the firmament of God, heirs together, because in God's sight, you're identical in value spiritually. You're the same. You have the same distribution of gifts, not the same gifts. But if you have, out of a possible, who knows, 20 gifts, 30 gifts, from which the Lord distributes some to each person, perhaps you have seven out of 30. If you only knew it, she may have nine out of 30. In God's sight, you're of equal value. Equally illuminated. Equally understanding. Equally useful to God. She can be used in the salvation of souls and the training of children and the blessing of other people and the shepherding of others. Equally. Heirs together. That's what needs to be underscored. You must understand headship in the light of these other texts. Some people say a husband is like a priest and they expound ideas of priesthood. He is, uh, he's Christ to you. That's rubbish, friends. That's nonsense exegesis of the Bible. It contradicts the priesthood of all believers. You can't go that far. There is headship, but there's to be mutual understanding and consideration, bearing in mind these vast areas of equality. And finally, before we close, that your prayers be not hindered, hampered, eclipsed, muted. What about your ministry of intercession? What about your daily cries, moment by moment, Lord, help me, in some need, in some hard situation. Lord, strengthen me. Lord, keep me safe in this trial. What about all your prayers? Your prayers for the gospel, the prayers for your Sunday school class, the prayers for the Lord's day that the Lord will bless us all and deepen us and save souls. Your prayers may not very much be heard. You may pray for an hour a day and maybe only have 30 seconds of that prayer heard. Why? Because you're a bad husband. Because you're not kind and courteous and respectful because you're a poor wife and you're not supportive enough and you don't understand the glory of role distribution. It can hinder your prayers. That's a warning to us. And the contrary too, it's wonderful. If I study to be a good husband, a good wife and keep the Lord's rule, 
and of great value in his sight in this respect, my prayers will not be hindered, and I shall see wonderful things. God bless us all, dear friends. It's a passage of challenge and of encouragement.